with Paizo, the No Direction Network, welcomes you to our PaizoCon Online 2020 Seminar Coverage. While you enjoy your PaizoCon Online 2020 Seminar recordings, remember that these were recorded online and that some minor audio and connection issues are to be expected. Everybody and welcome to the Adventure Path panel. Um, you've got a series of uh, uh, Paizo's developers here uh, talking about the Adventure Paths that are upcoming. We're happy to talk a little bit about Adventure Paths in the back uh, that are behind us, but we are primarily going to be talking about all the exciting stuff that is on the way. Uh, I wanted to open up by uh, letting us each give a little bit of an introduction. Uh, I'm Ron Lundeen. I work on the on the Pathfinder Adventure Paths. Um, I worked on Tyrant's Grasp and Extinction Curse that we're sort of in the middle of now. Um, and I love being part of the uh, storytelling side that's telling the uh, the long arc adventure path stories. Hey everybody, I'm Patrick Greeny, uh, the other half of Team Pathfinder AP. And uh, yeah, likewise, I really uh, just love working on these these campaigns. And uh, my first one was Agents of Edgewatch, and uh, I'll be I'll be sharing what, what, what's coming up next in this panel. Hi, I'm Jason Keeley. I'm a Starfinder Adventure Path developer, um, and uh, I've been at it for a bit. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, fun space stories and such. And I'm Damn Jason Tondo. I, I work alongside Keeley uh, in normal situations in the same cube in the Star Chamber. <laughs> And uh, and I wrote Starfinder Adventures first, and then not quite a year ago, I came onto the Star Chamber uh, to help make Adventure Pass for it. And uh, I got to some development work on the last couple on Three Four Conspiracy and Devastation Arc, and then we're prepping the one that comes after that. Alrighty, yeah, we have you call yourselves the Star Chambers. There, we call you the Sky People. I don't, I don't know. You're called... <laughs> anyway, we used uh, to be upstairs. And now, but now we're on the same floor. Right. So. When I first joined the company, you were literally right above us. And so Sky People made more sense, but it's, it's almost more appealing that it makes less sense. Um, all righty. We want to <laughs> launch into discussions about the upcoming adventure paths. I want to let everybody know who's listening that we're going to be giving some light spoilers uh, for this. So keep that in mind. Uh, it's always exciting to know what's coming up. People are going to want to know a real deep dive. We're going to provide overviews, the, the, the things that are about these that are going to make people excited. And I'll go first. Um, we have had a series of adventure paths for second edition that we're very happy with. Started with Age of Ashes, then into Extinction Curse. Uh, we know that the Agents of Edgewatch is coming up next, and that's been a lot of fun to see. Uh, but I wanted to talk about what was coming after that. If we could get the next slide. Starting in 2021 is the Abomination Vaults Adventure Path. This is a back-to-the-mega-dungeon, old-school dungeon-crawl adventure path. This is going to be a, uh, uh, a great type of adventure where there's the small town, local small town nearby. You're delving into the progressively deeper, progressively more dangerous levels. 
of the uh, of the the dungeon complex known as the Abomination Vaults. Uh, if I could get the next slide, what I'd like to point out is that this adventure path is set with the little town nearby is the town of Otari on the Starstone Isles southern coast. Now we've seen Otari before. It's been kind of a little town that's popped up in a Pathfinder Society scenario. It's really featured very heavily in the upcoming beginner box. And it is also the starting town that gets a lot more fleshed out in Abomination Vaults. So it's actually a place where we can keep going, keep telling stories. We've had people point out that Extinction Curse was sort of in the hinterlands of the Starstone Isles, that Agents of Edgewatch is really focused uh, in the city of Absalom, exclusively focused on the enormous metropolis of Absalom. So we've already talked about some of the stories we can tell on this island, but there's there's more stories we can tell. And the next uh, that we're going to be telling here is the Mega Dungeon. Uh, just outside of Otari to delve beneath the surface of of the Isle of Cortos. The most exciting thing about Abomination Vaults, I think, is that we are going to be telling the story in a very focused way, unlike our last, uh, unlike all the Pathfinder Adventure Paths we've ever done, Abomination Vaults is going to be three issues long rather than six issues long. And it is going to take people from first level uh, to conclude at 11th level. Uh, if Once we've done those three, we're going to pivot to the next adventure path, which I'll let Patrick talk about. Yeah, let's talk about it. Um, yeah, if we could see the next slide, please. Uh, the adventure path coming after Abomination Vaults is called Fists of the Ruby Phoenix. If you've been a longtime Pathfinder fan, then you probably already can glean what that means. But... Uh, for those of you who may be new to the, the campaign setting, basically we'll be uh, taking another swing at the Ruby Phoenix Tournament. Uh, it's a worldwide fighting tournament that takes place every 10 years. The last time we really talked about the Ruby Phoenix Tournament was in the, the module of the same name uh, 10 years ago. So yeah, it's, it's been a decade. It's time to revisit this. And this time we're giving it the, uh, the Adventure Path treatment. Um, like Abomination Vaults, we're going to be doing it in three parts rather than the usual six. Uh, and uh, it'll be taking you all the way from 11th level all the way to 20th. Because it's really such a, it's, it's the world's best fighters meet up at this tournament. So we really wanted to make it uh, mm -hmm. feel high level and grand in that way. Um, so it takes place on the other side of the world in Tian Sha. The, uh, the uh, uh, continent um, opposite of, on the other side of, of Galarian. And uh, there's going to be all sorts of uh, high-flying martial arts, some, uh, you know, amazing grandmasters and dojos and challenging all them. And, of course, uh, a fighting tournament in the same style as uh, Tekken or Mortal Kombat or those kinds of games are really leaning into the, the fighting game genre, trying to, trying to evoke a very similar feel to those, those classic <laughs> fighting games. So uh, I'm really excited to, to start working on this adventure path. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to uh, enable people to tell some really awesome stories. If you're a fan of Dragon Ball Z or, you know, uh, movies like Battle Royale or, uh, you know, uh, if you're if you want to get whack here and do something like um, uh, Kung Fu Hustle or something like that, you know, this is going <laughs> to be the adventure path that lets you tell those kinds of stories. So, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to start working on that. And uh, I'll let I'll let the Starfinder uh, the sky people take it away. 
Sure, yeah, three volume adventure pass. Where have I heard that before? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Um, uh, no, it's great to hear that Pathfinder's uh, uh, going in that direction. So we can see the next slide. Um, you all know uh, at this point, you've probably heard about the Devastation Arc Adventure Path. The uh, the product sites are up on 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 Paizo.com. Uh, but I wanted to sort of uh, talk a little bit more about that because we haven't really given uh, a lot of details. Um, these uh, this is also a three volume adventure path, but this is our uh, first foray into some high level play. For Starfinder, it starts at the level 13, and it will take you all the way to level 20th, and you will even have some 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 battles there at the end um, uh, at level 20. Um, this particular one, and and because so we can fit all that good good uh, high level content in there. Uh, all of these adventures are eight pages longer than the normal Starfinder adventures that you've seen in other adventure paths. Uh, so you know we got a lot of good stuff to cram in there. This uh, it's basically what happens is a an ancient alien uh, starship uh, sh shows up in the pack worlds uh, and starts wrecking up the joint, uh, and it's up to the PCs to sort of uh, uh, do a bunch of stuff to uh, to to put an end to to uh, the dangers. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of a uh, Damage control on on uh, Absalom Station. Uh, some you know some awesome uh, epic space battles uh, and and political maneuvering and stuff like that. So um, and of course we've got. Uh, I'll just quickly notice just note that uh, we've got three workhorses and powerhouses of Adventure Path writing: um, uh, Jenny Darzebski, uh, Eleanor Farron, and uh, Mr. Ron Lundeen here. Now, um, who, who 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 which alien species? is piloting this crazy thing um uh we've hinted at this uh race you probably heard of it if you played the dead sons adventure path you know that the and and, and long time past that the kishali fought the sieves um and we sort of you met you meet some some uh descendants of the kishali em, uh empire and um but we never hear much about the sieves who are they what were they were they evil were they completely wiped out turns out uh, maybe they weren't and this is kind of a a generation ship, uh, but evil. Um, and uh, right now I'm going to show you um, what this piece of art, which I'm, I've been so eager to show people off. It's a concept sketch of our Civ aliens. Um, and I've got it hanging on my cubicle wall uh, because it's just so beautiful. This is done by Ken Hamilton. So let's take a look at this next slide. Um, here are uh, the Civs. Um, and uh, wowie, uh, these, uh, these little, cre these creeps are just uh, going to be uh, all up in your biz um, for for a bit. Uh, you don't actually get to since this is a, a you know you don't get to really fully meet one until near closer to the end. Uh, but you'll get hints as to what they look like. Your players will get hints as to what they look like and and what they're doing and sort of what kind of uh, evil evil empire that they had uh, back in the day. So you don't uh, feel too bad about putting them in their place. Uh, at the end of this adventure path, where you're actually going to have a. Uh, a to spoil it a little bit, uh, your players are going to have a, a, a kind of a bunch of sieves and stasis, uh, and they're going to have to decide what to do with them. Is it just you fire them off into the sun because they they're irrevocably evil, or can you figure and wake them from their stasis and erase their memories and, and put them on a on a better course uh, for tomorrow? Um, so uh, it's a very exciting. Again, uh, uh, it starts up this August, uh, and uh, I, I can't wait for you all to get your hands on this. Uh, take it away, Jake. Let's talk about what comes next. Yeah, so uh, let's get the next slide, please. And uh, our next AP after Devastation Arc uh, is Life for Your Die. And this is the AP uh, for everybody who works for a living. Like, it's, if, you're, if you're not out here to save the world, if you're just trying to sort of do the job and get paid, uh, this is the AP for you. Um, the, uh, 
the the player characters are working for Edgecorp, this kind of oppressive uh, mega capitalist corporation, uh, and um, they're just trying to pay rent, you know, on their starship. But uh, after a lot of jobs go south, they end up having to take a kind of shady deal with this drow arms merchant. And pretty soon they are stealing a starship and on the run, uh, chased by the company uh, who's after them for the starship, chased by the Golden League crime boss who calls them a loose end that needs to get tied off. And by the way, there's this rival crew of space merchants that's always like up in their grill. Um, so then uh, the, the, the PCs are, you know, just trying to they're just trying to live free. Right. They're just want to they just want to do their own thing and maybe get rich. But it seems like the whole galaxy is on their butts. If uh, and then and ultimately, uh, when I pitched this, when I pitched this uh, adventure path, I described it. Other other APs have kind of a rags to riches story arc where you start off at level one and you get level high and you're, you know, it's like kind of the zero to hero. This is not rags to riches. This is rags to riches to ruin to revenge. And if if uh, those kind of gritty heroes from sci-fi like solo or firefly or the characters from aliens or um or even some of those uh, uh classical traveler campaigns or eve online where you're just trying to kind of go from planet to planet buying and selling uh if, if any of that stuff is the kind of thing you dig then uh fly for your die is going to be uh, a good campaign for you and and then also because it's starting off at first level, and this is a six volume adventure path, by the way, some fantastic authors that I can't wait to tell you all more about when we have more time. Um, the, it's very much written and developed with an eye towards new players who are maybe coming to Starfinder for the first time. Maybe this is the first campaign they've ever played in or that they've ever run. And it's very much kind of onboarding. Like there's a lot of kind of GM tools and help. There's a player's guide in the back of the first adventure to help players make characters that interact directly with the story. Like, let's tie your character's background into the background of the NPCs that you're going to meet in the adventure path. And this adventure path is all about making decisions and then the consequences of those decisions coming up later down in the adventure path. So if, you know, if you decide to screw that merchant over that, that, or that client or you decide to steal the goods and not get paid or whatever, you can do that. But those concept, those decisions are going to have long-term ramifications down the road. And when that person shows back up again later, if they start shooting first. Well, you don't really have anybody to blame but yourself, <laughs> right? And uh, sorry, Fly Through Die um, uh, has been the product page is already up. Like Kiwi was talking about for uh, Devastation Arc, if uh, the first couple of adventures are already uh, up there, we're no heroes. The first one, Merchants of the Void. The second, we're including a new subsystem for cargo merchant rules so if you want to know how to find and sell cargo how to transport it across the packed worlds near space and the vast we're going to have that too and we're taking advantage of a lot of the stuff in the starship operations manual and the near space books so that you're going to be traveling all over like this is a very kind of episodic campaign and it's like every week you're going to be on some other crazy new planet trying to unload some new crazy cargo or or do that bounty hunting job or smuggle that, that stuff past a Vesk blockade or, or whatever. And it's going to feel like very kind of edge of empire uh, kind of, kind of play. So we're looking forward to it and I'm, I'm really passionate about it. Thanks.
Yeah, excellent. Yeah, Jake and Jason were both more on top of things than uh, than I was in talking about Abomination Vaults. I do want to briefly say that those three adventures are they starts with Ruins of Gaunt Light, which is written by James Jacobs. So you've got James Jacobs back penning one of these, kicking us off. Uh, the second Hands of the Devil is written uh, uh, by Vanessa Hoskins, who's earlier saying she knows what what this adventure path is about. That's <laughs> that's exactly why. Um, and the third one is Eyes of Empty Death, written by Stephen Radney McFarland, who uh, is a great author by virtue of having his name on the cover of the Pathfinder 2nd Edition rulebook. You know he's got the uh, the rules chops to be able to handle the mechanics of that very well. So it's very, uh, very exciting. Uh, those are the three that I've got lined up. Um Already, I, uh, I suppose I should talk about my three too, then, huh? If we're all, if, if I mean, if, if we're all right. talking about our, <laughs> sure, you know, the thing, the thing, and I'll, and I'll, you can peek behind the screen a little bit here. The thing about announcing the volume titles is that as soon as I say them on this camera, we're locked in. So I'm very stoked <laughs> to be able to share with you the titles for the three volumes of the Ruby Phoenix Tournament Adventure Path, which is called Fist of the Ruby Phoenix. Those are going to be. Uh, Despair on Danger Island, which is going to be uh, 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 kind of that battle royale theme I was talking about. You're 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 fighting in the preliminary qualifier to get into the tournament, and uh, takes place on a on a jungle island with all sorts of challenges and races and all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, the second one is called Ready Fight, uh, and that's where the the grand tournament itself takes place. Uh, and then the third one is uh, called King of the Mountain, which uh, kind of is when everything starts to fall apart. Predictably, of course, you know, the tournament doesn't go exactly to plan. If you've seen an episode of Dragon Ball Z, then you know there's always some big powerful entity that wants to mess up the tournament and claim the title for themselves. So uh, you can expect that kind of thing in this adventure path for sure. Fantastic. And while we've got you, Patrick, one of the things that we wanted to talk about is how how these adventure paths we do, which excited to talk about where they are, that they're coming out, uh, that we're working on them, but we thought it might be helpful to get a little bit of an overview of the behind the scenes about how an adventure path gets made. Uh, Patrick, you wanna kind of Absolutely. walk through the process? Yeah, yeah, and please jump in at any point if, I, if I'm missing something or, or anything like that. Uh, one, of the, one of the joys of, of having so many developers on our team is that we each get to kind of uh, develop these adventure paths in a way that makes sense for us in a, in a um, you know, using our own tools and tricks and, uh, and procedures and that kind of thing. We have a lot of freedom to do that, but we do follow a set kind of um, procedure just to, to stay on schedule and get these things out the door, right? So um, how does an adventure path get made? It's, it starts with an idea, right? The first thing, first people are always asking, you know, like, how'd you come up with this adventure path? Like, why did you do, you know, why, why a, a super big dungeon crawl? You know, why, why a cops and robbers kind of campaign for agents of edge watch, that kind of thing. Um, you know, we, we spend a lot of time in the office, just kind of jumping into each other's offices and, and hanging out in the cubicles and, uh, and just talking about, you know, what, what's the game I want to run? What kind of, uh, story do we want to write next you know um so we we look at things like what locations haven't we been to uh yet at all or haven't been to recently and we'd like to revisit you know that those could be locations in the the game world like uh you know nations like nex or galt things that we haven't done an adventure path yet uh with um 
you know, what, what haven't we done? Like themes we want to explore, like kind of wasteland survival, or, you know, do we want to do it like a monster hunting uh, kind of campaign? Do we want everyone to be, uh, you know, uh, big cat breeders or something like that? Um, whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, if, uh, <laughs> so Patrick, we, have you been watching yeah. too much Tiger King? You Is know, that... I think I've been watching just the right amount, actually. <laughs> uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, so we just, you know, and we, and we, and, and like Keely's saying, we do play into like, what are our interests right now? What have we been enjoying playing, uh, you know, that other, other folks have been making that sort of stuff. We, we really draw from all sorts of uh, different media to, to explore our own world and to create really interesting stories. Um, yeah, we're also, I of think... course, looking at, you know, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think that of the two, the way that we create these, I think we we all tend to lean more towards themes than location. And when we do these sort of mm -hmm. panels, people are like, where's the Galt AP? And, you know, where's the Mwangi Expanse AP? And where's, I mean, they're, they're, they're asking on a location by location basis, which isn't bad, but actually the way that we concept, and you can even hear by the way we're talking, right? We're talking about themes. This is the one where everybody's cops and we think about what's the right place to set that this is the the starfinder adventure where you're just the the the, the everyday joes trying to get it all done what's that going to be like where's that going to go i think the theme is sort of the the stronger hook in a lot of these and it's where i love to start absolutely yeah yeah yeah, um, we also look at, you know, synergizing with our synergizing. There you go. Uh, here's some business <laughs> talk. Um, we look at brand goals. We look at synergy. We look at the creative appeal. What's the, you know, what's the box going to look like? That kind of stuff. Um, and, but we really do, you know, we try and think, you know, is this book going to play into other books? You know, uh, is this story, um, you know, how is the story going to affect the rules as well as the the world we're coming up with? So after we come up with the idea, at any rate, all that's the fun. That's the that's one of the funnest parts for sure, right? It's just uh, shooting the breeze <laughs> with your buddies at work and and coming up with cool stories. So after that, you know, uh, comes the the actual the the grid of it, the work, which is you know uh, outlining the uh, adventure path. You know, we give our authors we we don't have time or well, there's a bunch of reasons, but we don't write these things in house because we want to give we want a lot of people to be working on them we want to explore different authorial voices and and give uh you know uh, uh our our writers a chance to play in this awesome world so we work with um you know freelancers we we look for uh freelance writers decide who that's going to be we outline the adventure path with them and uh kind of explore where you know where we want to go make sure all the threads tie together and then, uh, and then we get the the sign off on that and send it off to the authors. They they start cranking it out. So while you know a lot of people ask, well, so wait, if you're not the ones writing the adventure paths, what do you do? Um, you know, which is a very good question. Uh, <laughs> if if we have you know people outside the office uh, writing these things, what what do us developers do? So we're the ones who make sure that you know. Um, we, we look over the author's turnovers as they come in. We look at their, their extended outline. We look at a milestone, which is, you know, a halfway point, make sure everything's on track, make sure that uh, it's staying on schedule and within the scope and, and all that stuff. And we, uh, you know, we make sure that it's consistent with our world because there's so many things in both Starfinder and Pathfinder that, uh, that, you know, it's just really hard for one person to know everything that's going on. Um, you know, I guess that's kind of our role is we're making sure that volume one lines up with volume two and that, you know, character, the character from volume six uh, has as a maintains a similar look throughout all the volumes. 
um, you know, that kind of thing. So we're working with the art team to uh, come up with art briefs, which are, you know, things we send to external artists uh, to, to tell them like, hey, this, this is the, the big bad NPC at the end. Um, they got green eyes, you know, black hair, and they wield a big awesome sword. And, um, you know, and then we get the art in and we say, okay, that looks awesome, but they need the tattoo on their left shoulder, not the right, um, that kind of stuff. We're, we're just making sure that it's consistent. And also, um, perhaps most importantly, that it works with, within the game rules, right? Um, so, you know, as any GM can attest, there, there are plenty of rules to uh, remember and keep in mind. And, uh, you know, those are rules that are in the core rulebook. There, there are also rules that are just kind of unspoken that, um, you know, uh, like what kinds of themes do we want to cover and that kind of stuff. So we're, we act as moderators and uh, quality assurance and all sorts of different hats, really. Um, so, and we work with all the other teams to make sure that these books kind of fall within the, the Paizo vision, you know, to make sure that this Starfinder uh, AP feels like a Starfinder AP and that this, this Pathfinder AP feels like a Pathfinder AP. Um, and there's all sorts of fiddly bits that I'm sure would uh, just bore people to tears to talk about when it comes to uh, uh, making these products, you know, copy fit, that kind of thing, um, you know, but uh, I think the the fun parts I've covered pretty much are, you know, coming up with the idea, pitching it to the freelancers and seeing the awesome work that the freelancers uh, come up with. Can I jump in for a minute, Patrick? Please do. Uh, you know, one of the things, I don't know if you guys do this on the Pathfinder side, but Starfinder is kind of interesting as a game because it embraces so many different genres of play. And so as we've come up with different APs, I think we've really been trying to kind of illustrate the, bro the breadth of the game. So we have kind of classic space opera with Dead Sons, and then we did kind of a horror game with Signal of Screams. We've got like that uh, Aslandi Empire thing in the middle there. It's got a cool kind of breakout plot line going on. Uh, and then we have the big sort of more a more high fantasy genre with Dawn of Flame, where you've got Efreet and all of their you know army invading from the sun. Uh, and, and I think that. Uh, uh, and, and but but you've also been doing this because Agents of Edgewatch with that sort of cop cops and robbers plot that's a very different genre than the dungeon crawl for example that we're going to get with the mega dungeon and by the way I just want to say I'm so glad you got Stephen writing a father to come in because he is the king of the mega dungeon and if there is anybody I would want to write that last adventure it would be totally be Stephen. That <laughs> Jake last year you and it was you and me and Stephen who were on the dungeon panel right. So he yeah, brought he like this. Like mist and smoke and everything, and <laughs> <laughs> totally outclassed us with his knowledge of the mega dungeon. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've been able to do with that—that's a lot of fun—is in the, our last, a, a, the, we've got a series of three adventure paths that all take place in the same area geographically, but all feel very, very different from one another. We want to showcase how even a small part of our world, an important part of our world, but a small part of our world has so many different options for adventure just there. I love that it's hooking into the beginner box, too, because that's going to develop that little town, that little village. What's it called again? Otari is the Otari. name. O-T-A-R-I. It's going to develop that little community, and so it's going to be a natural home base for players, and they've got all of these adventures in that region. It's wonderful. It's just a brilliant move. That's right. We're going to talk tomorrow about a standalone uh, Pathfinder Adventures product called Troubles in Otari. But what we want to do is we want to be able to bring people in through the beginner box to play and enjoy our game and show them how many different kinds of stories we're able to help them tell, either in the 
the short, very short form that's in the beginner box or the longer form Pathfinder Adventures we have, or even, hey, this, there's a sprawling Pathfinder uh, adventure path that tells multiple, a, a large story over multiple volumes. <laughs> okay. Oh, boy. Ron, what, what are we talking Patrick. about next? Did Patrick, hey. did you, I want to make Patrick, we kind of jump in. That. While Patrick is in the middle of no, talking yeah. about the process, and I was letting um, it kind of organically flow, just letting it, you know, steep a bit. I guess the silence is really good for air. They call it dead <laughs> air, but it's uh, <laughs> it's it's a little known secret in the uh, the podcast trade and stuff like that. Um, yeah, no, that's a, I, that's all I got to say about making adventure paths. Really, it it really is. Uh, you know, if you're a game master for any game and and you come up with an idea, you're like, oh man, I want my players to you know start out rags to riches this is it this is the story you know they're going to be uh professional freelancer uh you know ship ship uh dudes who are you know uh moving cargo across the galaxy and then oh then they're going to fight this and this and this um that really is kind of what it's like it's you know you're coming up with the entire campaign uh visualizing how it's going to progress you know visualizing the the twists and turns and then you're you're putting it on a paper so that other people can put it on paper and yeah it gets made yeah, that's uh, some of the specifics about what we do. We've got the ability to talk about a little bit here. One of the uh, one of the things we do is interface with a lot of other really talented people other than just the freelancers that we're working with. We work with our art department to talk about uh, what kind of art we want our artists to produce to make these really gain the feel, and then what sort of maps we want to produce in order to put the uh, the maps together. We've got a, a couple of examples, each of us, about taking the sketches for maps that the freelancers give over to us as part of the adventure, part of their product, and what we do to sort of go through that. And I want to I go ahead and start here. If I can get the next slide. Um, Miko Calio, who wrote the fifth adventure in the Extinction Curse Adventure Path, which is called Lord of the Black Sands, that takes place in a underground city called Shrain. This is actually something that's been established in our lore, and it's got a, a, it's a necropolis built sort of in an Egyptian style. In our world, it's sort of a quasi-Osirian style. Uh, it's, its origins are explored a little bit in the adventure, but it is currently a city populated by undead drow. It is, it is a very dangerous, very high-level feeling place to be, and it's got all sorts of huge pyramids and old slave quarters. It's uh, made of a lot of dark you know, stone. Because the drow are there, it's got a lot of lights that the drow produce, but not an awful lot of lights. It's really gloomy and underground. What we've done is, what I did is I took this map that's got substantially the key areas of the part of the adventure that goes on as part of the description of Shrain. And... I talked about what each of the sections, you'll see the numbers are important to the adventure, but also important to the city description. Uh, I put together a sort of a long document about here's what it kind of ought to look like. Here's what the whole thing ought to look like. Here's what the specific places look like. Uh, pass, that out to our, pass that over to our art team, who then gives it to the cartographer. And the cartographer works their magic with that description and that basis. If I can get the next slide... We'll see what the city of Shrain looks like in the actual adventure. 
Um, and that puts up the the actual gloomy feel of the city. It's got some of the light purple and blue lights that that show it's got the drow in it. Even the area around the city shows that the the vault of the black desert, in fact, is in the middle of a a black sandy wasteland underground. So part of the part of the fun is taking the the sketches that the freelancers produce and turning them into some of the beautiful cartography. Um, I know that's my example. Patrick, you've got one as well. Absolutely. It's on the next slide. Uh, what we're looking at here is uh, a, uh, so, so yeah, one of the coolest parts about development, I think is working on these maps because uh, I've always found cartography so inspiring. So there's all sorts of ways you can go about handing the cartographer uh, and the art team, you know, uh, a representation of what of what you want to to see. So, with your example, Ron, uh, you know, that was a hand drawn or uh, drawn with a computer program kind of outline of the the city and stuff, and very uh, unique shape and all these awesome buildings and stuff like that. And so, what uh, I kind of want to just show just a, a different example of like another way that maps come about, which is um, this is a zoomed in. Uh, screenshot of the the mountains at the center of the Isle of Cortos. These are the Cortos Mounts. Um, so these, I just used that image that you saw on an earlier slide uh, that showed the whole island. I just zoomed in on the, the center of that and there's some mountains in there and I, I cropped that out and I sent it uh, to the art team and said, okay, here's some, you know, tags and stuff like that. I think I, uh, let's see, oh, um, you know, here, here's the general look of it. Here's where the tallest mountain is. Here's where another, you know, here's the volcano, this kind of stuff. And as you can see on the next slide, uh, the cartographer was able to turn over a really cool uh, artistic rendering of this terrain, which uh, is a lot more, um, you know, it's, it's really cool that it's this kind of uh, isometric view sort of thing, um, you know, that they were able to come up with and, uh, and convey um, you know, in a way that I could never, uh, you know, describe that kind of thing. So uh, sometimes we we give our art team and our cartographer, we just say, here's a here's a basic idea. Please go, please make the make the dream go, and they they <laughs> they always make the dream go. Patrick, um, yeah, yeah, I, I love this map because I love the way that it guides the adventure. Like you can just look at the map and you can see the routes where the players will travel to go from one location to the next. Absolutely. And, and I think with this one in particular, uh, on the next slide, I, uh, I think I tagged it after we got it back because I wanted to, uh, you know, let the let the cartographer guide the vision more on this one rather than having the, you know, the words guide the, the art. I wanted it to kind of be the other way around on this one. So, you know, um, I said, you know, there's got to be a volcano, there's got to be a tall mountain, that kind of thing. And then afterward, we were like, okay, this is the, you know, the, after those major landmarks, we were able to place the smaller landmarks kind of like according to which areas on the map looked cool and which made the most sense, um, you know, from a from a storytelling perspective. So there's all sorts of ways these maps come about. And uh, yeah, they always uh, they always come in awesome, though. All right. This is actually and I think I, uh, the, yeah. well, oh, I was going to say one of the things I really love about this is the key locations for the adventure that this takes place in are on this map, but there are so many more tags. So there's so much more adventure just on this particular map that the adventure path can never get into, but there's just so much opportunity here. Absolutely, yeah. You know, um, I love putting in, I think with just a word or two, you can really inspire a lot of adventures, you know, like this wall of faces up in the Northwest corner. Um, 
what is that, right? You know, if I was a reader, I'd be like, well, I, I can come up with a whole adventure about a wall of faces. That sounds pretty creepy. And of course, in the text, we always, you know, we talk about it and talk, you know, give some ideas. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, I love the maps. So we've got with that, uh, I think Jake. Jason Keeley, uh, yeah. Oh, Jake, sorry. Yeah. yeah Next Jake, slide, please. So um, I, I've been doing a lot of the development work for the starships uh, on the inside covers of Starfighter Adventure Pass. And I wanted to kind of walk some of our players through this process and talk about some of the really interesting and unique challenges of doing these starship maps. This is a, this is a map for one of uh, our high-level adventures in, I, I believe it's, is it from Devastation Arc, Keeley? Correct yeah, me. Yes, yeah. I think so, yeah. I think it's from the middle devastation arc volume and um we always try to put these starships in the book and make them a level appropriate to the level of the adventure even if the event the uh, the starship doesn't actually appear in the adventure sort of a you know a get what you expect to be on the outside of the tin kind of situation well anyway high level starships well quite frankly they're enormous like they're really big and and <laughs> And how do you cover that when you have the limitations of an eight and a half by 11 inside cover? I mean, these starships should have multiple decks and they should, they should have some kind of three dimensionality to them, you know, like a, a upper level, lower level. I mean, I think the enterprise has got like 37 decks or something crazy like that. Like how do we do that in a, in a map? Well, so anyway, so you give these really difficult assignments to your uh, writers and they come back with a starship and they have to make they have to do the best they can with a, a floor plan that's gonna fit on this page and if you look at this map this is a really really big starship and it's got you can hear my dog in the background there she <laughs> uh uh and and if you look the um the scale of this starship you can see the little tiny grid squares there like there's like four or five squares covering a single hallway Imagine copying this on the inside cover of a Starfinder book, and then imagine being a player or a GM who gets this and has to draw it back out onto their battle map, right? Like, it, it would just be too big. Like, you could use a whole battle map and barely fill one corner of this thing, right? It's cargo bay. So we had to figure out what to do, well, we, but still keeping everything the writer had done, because the Starship's great. Like, it does everything I need. I think this one's a luxury cruise liner. Right. Can we go to the next slide, please? So I just ended up redrawing a lot of it and changing the scale, right? So now we've got one square is 10 feet. And we we moved a lot of these things around and we filled in some of the empty spaces. If you remember back in the previous picture, the whole kind of front quarter of the ship is this big empty space. And we know it's the bridge, but like what what's up there? I gotta give the artist something to work with. So I thought, well, if it's a passenger vessel, if it's a cruise liner, maybe the passengers who are spending a lot of money to get on the starship would want to hang out on the bridge and kind of watch the captain and watch the bridge crew kind of do their thing and look through the big view screen and watch the, you know, the universe go by. So we created some like passenger viewing areas to take up some space on that bridge, that huge cavernous bridge. We added some officer seats and stuff. And then we went through and, and, moved around a lot of the room, still keeping the basic design of the ship, but making it a scale, which while still big, was not completely unreasonable for your gaming table. Let me go to the next slide, please. 
And what we had, what we got was Damien's fantastic final version, right, of the Borealis Cruiser, and uh, he added the you know the wonderful colors to it that that echo the name of the of the ship, and he made it uh, this made it come to life, right? So you can see. Thank God I'm not the final cartographer, right? I think that's all something we can all agree upon. That we get we hire professionals to do all this. Uh, and you can still see all, all the important stuff. We've got all the, the, the luxury cabins with the captain's quarters and all the entertainment areas and the kitchens. And there's that bridge with the visitor viewing areas where the, uh, the, the passengers can hang out. So it retains the, the basic concept of the original design. Like everything the writer needed to be on this ship is still there. We just kind of tweaked it a little bit. But honestly, we really just kind of streamlined it and simplified it. If there's one thing I have learned... In, in being a developer, it's that almost always the first time you pitch something, whether it's a starship or an adventure or a rule subsystem or even a feat or a spell, nine times out of 10, it's too complicated. And you can simplify it, you can streamline it and make it simpler by cutting and make it better in the process. And a lot of, a lot of that we've done here with these starships. That's it for me, Pastor Keeley. Yeah, so we've you know we've seen some some overland maps and some um, city maps and some starship maps. So I want to talk a little bit about encounter maps. Uh, so uh, we can go to the next slide. Um, these are going to be from actually um, AP Starfinder Star AP number thirty two, the Starstone Blockade, which is the second volume of the Devastation Arc. And uh, the middle bit of uh, of this adventure has a lot of stuff happening on Absalom Station after something very bad happens to it. Um, uh, you can maybe get a, a vague hint about what that might be uh, from the title of the adventure. Um, but essentially, uh, uh, power goes out in Epsom Station, and the PCs are sort of sent to a bunch of different places to sort of help out, because uh, you know once the power goes out, chaos erupts in, in, in a lot of different ways. Um, this one was written by Eleanor Farron, and she gave us a bunch of uh, uh, great sort of set piece uh, sort of fights. And these are just sort of essentially, um, you know, uh, uh, while these are all happening within, you know, a half hour's time or something like that, uh, there are essentially one encounter locations uh, for the most part. Um, and uh, unfortunately, she gives a, a, you know, a lot of these and she gives a map for each one. And having a map for an encounter is, I think, important. Um, uh, and uh, these are these are these would be great maps to to send to a uh, to our cartographer without any kind of tweaking whatsoever. Unfortunately, we kind of had a little too many of them. Um, so what I had to do a, a little bit, and we can see the uh, uh, the next slide too. There's another one that takes, but this is sort of uh, first one takes place in sort of a, a neighborhood with a with a with a theater nearby. This is a cargo deck where uh, some rich jerk is basically, you know, like these are my ships. You you people can't get on them. Um, uh, so uh, we had, you know, the PCs have to sort of maybe negotiate their way through. Uh, that last area was basically like, oh, but a bunch of void trolls come out of that, you know, uh, come out of the ground and start punching people. Um, so, you know, uh, and again. As they want to do, because you know they're they got mutated by void energies and uh, are just are just so angry. Um, uh, uh, again, you know, and this is just two out of like five or six uh, sort of areas that uh, uh, happen in just this part of this one part of the adventure alone. Um, so, and all all I did was basically you know go up into sort of like paint or whatever, and sort of uh, with the original with the file sent to us by Anor, kind of like get sort of the 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 main thrust of the of what was going on here chopped them up and sort of uh frankenstein them uh together uh and then we can see in the next slide sort of what happens uh, at, at the end of that once i give that these two spaces here's two encounters uh basically and this is one half page map um and you know you can see here that rob lazaretti sort of did, did the nice sort of like 
uh, uh, Chinese theater style uh, uh, top to that sort of uh, to that movie place, but the kept the you know kept everything that was you know sort of fun and and important about the um, the encounters, the sort of the set dressing, so to speak. And uh, we just had to, unfortunately, you know, uh, it becomes a time when it becomes a necessity that you've got to change something on a map because you don't have enough room or that encounter actually needed to get cut or changed in, in some way in development. Um, and that just becomes our job as developers to sort of figure out how, uh, you know, how we fit these maps and other types of art and how that all, all goes together. Um, uh, I don't really have much anything else to say except for, you know, there will be a, uh, uh, on this particular, on the left-hand side, a uh this this encounter can actually go one of two ways you can either side with the 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 crowd of uh of people who want to get off the station because it's failing or you can side with the rich person um and fight against an angel on a motorcycle i know which way i would go personally uh and but hopefully uh you want to be on the side of the angel with the motorcycle i think Oh, well, one of the things that does that does raise the fact that you did some some surgery, you talked about sort of Frankensteining the uh, the maps together. That's one of the things touches on a lot of the job that we have as developers is to take things that are that come into us sort of good and then make them even better. And sometimes making even better means cutting or readjusting. Uh, sometimes it has reasons to do with the turnover, maybe the uh, the, the freelancer that wrote it. Uh, didn't realize we've got a set of rules to address this particular issue. And so we sort of make the rules mesh in a way that fits our systems. Sometimes we just, uh, you think we can take a, a good idea and make it great by by changing some things, adding in. So there's a lot of the change that we do, which with maps, with stat blocks, with the adventure itself and the encounters, it doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the freelancers. We are just going to go with uh, uh, what's going to make the whole product better. Sometimes that requires a little bit of stitching, like you say. So, yeah, I think that's yeah, and, and again, it's sort of like uh, Eleanor's maps were were great, and 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 it was just a matter of like there were just a few too too many of them. <laughs> she yeah. she over delivered. A lot of development is, is kind of like stuffing. It's it's like stuffing a, a duvet into a you know into a, a purse. I just heard that expression recently. But um, you know, uh, it's it's trying to tr cram all these awesome ideas into the the reality of the situation is that we only have a certain number of pages. So you know yeah. you have to pick and choose and and really hone it down and and uh, yeah get get in as much awesome stuff in as little space as possible. Yep. That's the uh, yeah, that's often, the work that we do. Oh, go ahead. Our, our, our writers, who are incredibly talented and continue to turn in just amazing manuscripts, they're limited by one big thing. They don't see the entire AP. They don't see everybody else's manuscript. And, and so maybe they use a monster for yeah. one encounter that they thought was no big deal, but we know that the same monster was just used in the previous adventure or is going to yeah. come up in the next adventure. And so we have to swap it out or... Or maybe they don't know that we've gotten a lot of um, critique. For example, in Starfinder, like uh, we have a lot of things that are immune to mind affecting effects, right? Like undead and robots. And we tend to use those a lot, especially in low level adventures, because robots and undead zombies, are, they're just so great. But then you feel sort of the poor mystic who can't use any of their abilities, right? And, and, and so we may have to make changes that, that you know, the play, this is not on the players, uh, the, the individual writers, the, the writers, it's not on their view screen. Like they, these are not the sort of things they think about. They've, they, they've, they've just got one more encounter to fill and they've got this cool idea and they want to use it. 
uh, or maybe they're creating a new monster for the AP for that adventure that's very similar to a monster that our fellow developer is putting in the uh, in the back matter for that article for that adventure. I often describe my job as making sure that Darth Vader talks the same in the first movie as he talks in the sixth movie, right? Like that his dialogue is the <laughs> mm -hmm. same. Uh, because the, the the writers they don't know that they don't. I'm, I'm in Fly Free or Die. You meet one of the main villains, one of the main antagonists, this Golden League crime boss. You meet him in the first volume. You're not going to fight him, but you meet him. And I wanted to make sure we did that so that when he starts sending goons after you for the next five adventures, and you finally face him down at the end, there's some relationship there. Like he's a face that you know and you can identify with. Well, that's good. But it's really hard <laughs> because you've got six different people writing this adventure path. And if that guy shows up more than once, then as a developer, I have a creative challenge to make sure that it's that he is recognizable. It's not like, hey, what 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 did somebody do to this guy? Because he's totally different now than he was when we saw him three adventures ago. <laughs> so it's a, it's a real challenge. Yeah, one of the dirty secrets, though, is we get to do a best of, right? Because if somebody has shown up in a couple different adventures, we've got an idea for what they're like. And then a couple of different freelancers turn in things. We can take the very best ideas that the freelancers that have touched on them together to make that the truth that ends up in the publication. Like the number of times that doing Fly Free or Die, that I just pitched this impossible problem to a freelancer and let them solve it for me. I cannot tell you. <laughs> you know, you get, I've got this. I've got this really hard plot point and I'm like, okay, well, we need this thing to happen. Like we're going to, here's a little, little bit, there's an auction scene in one of these adventures in one of these adventure paths. And like, there's an auction and the players, in theory, they want to win this auction. They want to get this thing. Well, how do you do an auction scene? Like what are the mechanics for that? How do you make it interesting? How do you give everybody something to do? Not just the person holding the paddle. Like you've got a team of like four or five, six players here. They're not all just gonna stare at the envoy while the envoy lifts a path. Like we gotta we gotta get some interaction going there. And I just gave it to the author and she nailed it. Like she gave me this amazing subsystem for like everybody's got a job in the auction scene. And it's like, man, we are saved by our authors. They are <laughs> Yeah, that's one of the things Patrick and I are moving toward is we had, even though these products come out monthly, one of the things that we've had a lot of success with is getting, assigning the turnovers so they come in at the same time and we can sit down and read all the turnovers beginning to end, the whole thing. So if something cool is going to happen in the sixth adventure, we can actually plant the right seeds for it in the in earlier adventures. And that I think is is really... I've seen Agents of Edgewatch have some amazing things in that regard. And it's, and it's, you know, it sounds so simple to say, to be like, well, yeah, I'll read it all at once, but uh, our schedules are just, you know, it's, these things come out every month. So there's just, uh, yeah. there's so much to do and, and accomplishing that is, yeah, it feels, it feels good. <laughs> yeah. You know, I find myself sort of writing constant notes that I'm like, okay, I'm halfway, you know, maybe through developing adventure four. And I remembered that, or halfway th that in Adventure Three that sort of mentioned this in a different way. I got to go back and fix that before it goes to print, and and make it sort of flow because I like the maybe the way it, later on it happened a little better or or some other way that oh that makes more sense. So it there's just you know for NAP uh, especially when I was coming in sort of halfway through the uh, threefold conspiracy, which is 
in of itself a whole tangled mess of of, of things happening uh just constantly writing notes and having a big string of that to like okay when this comes back into copy fit i better change a b and c mm -hmm. yep that was uh anyway but that's that's the work that we do one of these uh one of the things that tends to be really popular with these ap panels is we open it up to questions for anything that we've either already done already talked about in this about what's what's either adventure paths we've already done in the history of Paizo or the stuff that we've announced going forward, uh, open up for people's questions. I do want to say that if we can't get to everything and you've still got questions, uh, we've got Ask Me Anything channels on the Paizo Discord, which is a good place to jump in and, and ask any of the things that you want to know from any of us individually. Uh, and I also want to point out, uh, Jason, you're... I think you're scooting out maybe a little bit early. So if anybody has questions for Jason, maybe, uh... I, I think I don't think I need to scoot out early necessarily. The way the timing works is, but I oh, will perfect, be hanging perfect. out with the uh, No Direction crew oh, afterwards. Perfect, so perfect. come, come talk to me there. Alrighty. I had a question that came by earlier that I wanted to ask. Somebody said, "Hey, with the Abomination Vaults being a first through eleventh level adventure path, first through tenth, ending at eleventh, and then uh, Fist of the Ruby Phoenix." going from 11th or 20th do they do they do they tie together uh the the answer is yes in that you're ending at just the right level to pick up the next one but patrick i wonder if you had any thoughts about how how you might be designing fists of the the ruby phoenix to pull that well you know we kind of went back and forth on this when we were when we were ideating and and figuring out do we want this to be a um you know, do we want Fist of the Ruby Phoenix to like have a direct tie to the previous one? Do we want the backgrounds to somehow play into it? That kind of thing. Do we want recurring NPCs? But we, you know, um, they are, I think it's kind of the best of both worlds is that each AP can stand on its own. If you already have a group of players and you're already almost 10th level or whatever, then you can just jump right into the Ruby Phoenix. Or, um, you know, if you just played the, the Abomination Vaults, then yeah, it's a natural jumping off point because the Fist of the Ruby Phoenix uh, adventure path kind of assumes that you're you're basically local heroes, right? At tenth level or eleventh level, you're you basically you probably saved um, you know your town, city, maybe even nation at that point. But uh, but eleventh level is when you know you start to get teleport spells and go to other planes and start doing even crazier stuff that uh, that you know the scale just becomes a lot more cosmic or whatever. Um, so. So yeah, in that way, it's it's a very natural lead in. In Abomination Vaults, you're delving into this mega dungeon and you know really focused in on the Isle of Cortos and Otari. And then when you're ready to kind of take it to the world stage at at eleventh level, that's when you go you know you go see where what have every what has everyone else been up to in these ten levels? You know who else is eleventh level now? And that's when you get to meet all these other fighters and other people from around the world. We had a, a similar thing with uh, uh, against the Aeon Throne and Signal Scream. So they are completely different genres uh, of of adventures, right? Against the Aeon Throne is a you know scrappy struggling against the, the evil empire, where Signal Screams is, is is you know cosmic horror, space horror stuff. But they level wise, you can play one right after the other, and it's just a matter of like maybe a paragraph or even a few sentences of saying like, oh, your PCs. We're doing against the Anthrone stuff. Well, now they need a, they get a well deserved break by going to this fancy resort. Oh, whoops. They also, it's horror time. <laughs> yeah, we That's try to get a couple break. of, yeah, <laughs> we give some GM tools. So if the GM decides that they do want to move transition over, they, we give them some 
basic scaffolding of how to do that. But uh, but it's so hard to predict what the player group is going to be. So we kind of leave most of it open. And nobody's going to know that better than the GM at the table, I think. And, uh, yeah. Exactly. We want to yeah. give them, give them this, the right tools. Uh, we got a couple of questions our- coming in. I was going to say, we got a couple questions yep. coming in already. Uh, Patrick, uh, who are the authors on the Fist of the Ruby Phoenix? I'm so glad uh, Asker asked. Uh, the author of the first volume is our very own uh, Luis Loza. Um, <laughs> and uh, the second volume is being written by David N. Ross. And the third volume is uh, another person who sits in our, our cubes, uh, James Case. All right. Excellent. Uh, one of the next question we've got is what sort of skill set or portfolio do you look for when trying to find freelancers or writers? It's a really good question. Yeah. I mean, for one experience is uh, writing adventure specifically is, is pretty helpful. If you can demonstrate some way, even if it's just something you wrote for yourself, uh, right, Jake. Um, and, uh, 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 but if you have something that's published, obviously that's, that's going to be great. We're going to look at that, uh, in terms of like skill sets, you know, I personally, uh, want to, uh, get people who, who can help, you know, uh, you to grasp that story and, and, and make it uh, even more interesting than what's in the outline and flesh out the, the, the bits that are just like what Jake says, like, oh, question marks here, I guess, profit. Um, uh, and, 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 and really, uh, give it, give, put their, put their fingerprints on it. Uh, um, mechanics, of course, very helpful to know all of the, the, the basic way things work, but uh, you know, that's as a developer, that's something that we can obviously fix along the way that, doesn't be not as, not as difficult to fix than fundamental uh, stories with uh, issues with the story. I think that uh, I know I know for speaking only for myself that I, I think it's important to hire diverse voices in your authorial pool. Um, half of the Fly Free or Die Adventure Path are written by women and half by by men. Um, many of these folks have already written scenarios or other long work for us, but they haven't got a chance to write an adventure path before. So there was a, a, a desire to kind of give some people uh, that maybe some fresh voices at the same time. I also needed a couple of reliable writers to kind of anchor the project. Um, so Joe Passini is writing uh, the third one for us. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, it's a very curious mix of kind of new talent seasoned writers um, and and voices that we think add not only to our adventure path, but to the hobby. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're, I mean, yeah, we're, we're always looking for, you know, um, one of the, one of the secrets of publishing is that we're always looking for the next, you know, person who will write the next bestseller, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. is, you know, we're always looking for new folks because you never know who's going to be, who's going to write the next, you know, awesome adventure. So, um, you know, we're looking, I, for myself, I think, uh, you know, I'm looking for people who are good at the things that I don't want to have to work on too much. Uh, if that makes sense, the, the easier you can make my job, the more likely I'm going to hire you. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if you're great at drawing maps, then, and I don't have to redraw any maps or, you know, do anything like that. That's awesome. Um, you know, if you're, uh, really skilled at, uh, you know, uh, there's this kind of tricky balance with with writing adventure paths is that it's 
important to be a good game master because a good game master knows what's fun at the table, you know, that kind of thing. But also you need to be a good writer because um, people are reading these things. So, you know, having those two skill sets, uh, they, they kind of play into each other sometimes, but, um, you know, you, you know, uh, uh, we're looking for people who can make the, the adventure path as enjoyable to read as it is to play. Right. If that makes sense. So, um, you know, I really, appreciate people who, who read a lot of fantasy and read a lot of the stuff that um, we're trying to emulate or trying to, uh, you know, pay, uh, uh, pay homages to and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, we're looking for, for people with a diverse set of talents and diverse experiences to really kind of lend their expertise uh, where, you know, we might not have the expertise. Yeah, to underline Patrick's point, long ago in a world away, when I was in a very different career, I was told by uh, my boss, hire to your weakness mm -hmm. our, our, our natural tendency is to hire people like us to hire people that like the same things we like and to like the people that do the same things we do but you don't need people to do that because you can do that right <laughs> right <laughs> hire, hire people that do all the things you suck at and that's hard because you have to get introspective and ask yourself okay <laughs> what do i suck at <laughs> right <laughs> or at least where, where can i stand to learn and mm -hmm. and so uh, I, I just want to really, Patrick's exactly on the right path here. And, and that means that every one of us is going to hire different people because we all have different strengths. And that's good. That's good for the writing pool. It means that maybe I, I don't need you, but but somebody else does. And that person that, that Patrick doesn't need, I'm like, give me that person because <laughs> mm -hmm. I need that person. <laughs> yeah, from a practical basis, one of the things that I really have to pull back on, I've learned as I've gotten more into this adventure development career, is the tendency to make things sound like I would say them, when in fact, we've hired these freelancers specifically, so the audience, the consumer, the readers, the players, they can all hear things the way they would say them. And yeah. apart from just not having enough time to rewrite everything, trying to make the, uh, the best of what they have to say uh, really come through, is it's mm -hmm. it, frankly for me it's the hardest part of the job um let's see we've got uh, somebody taking advantage of this once in a lifetime chance to have the starfinder and pathfinder people here do you think there will ever be some kind of crossover adventure between pathfinder and starfinder kind of like a, a simpsons uh family guy kind of crossover kind of thing <laughs> simpsons futurama <laughs> there it is, is yeah the yeah that was right there what it is <laughs> um uh i mean i wouldn't rule anything out ever because uh it's the moment you say that the, is the, the year later you look like a fool for saying well never do that and then you doodly doodly do we do it yeah, um yeah. but uh you know that's it would require uh uh, uh just an uh a miracle, I imagine, of of, <laughs> of, of us getting together to do it, and 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 people agreeing, you know, you know, Eric agreeing to do it, essentially. Right. Yeah. The, the the thing for oh, oh, we get a lot of questions about Pathfinder Starfinder crossover. I was doing some in the AMA just earlier today, and the thing that people have to realize is that as the Starfinder people, we are simply further forward in time than the Pathfinder people. And so if we do an adventure where Starfinder and Pathfinder cross the streams, we're telling the Pathfinder players what's happening in their future. That's not good for Pathfinder. It's just not good for the game. And uh, not to mention J Jacobs would 
his head would explode. <laughs> so, so instead, we're not going to do that. Like we're, it, I'm not, never say never. Um, maybe some sort of non-canonical, I would love to see like a non-canon free RPG. PG day product. Yeah. Something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, where we just do it for fun. Like the Skitter Mandarin Goblin snowball fight, you know, like let's do that. Right. But, but in a serious way, I mean, not unless the company blows up. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I think the gap exists for a reason, and it's to put some exactly. space in game between the Pathfinder world and the Starfinder world. That's not to say we won't do sort of even sometimes sly references, right? If I was setting a Pathfinder thing on one of the other planets in Galarian star system, right? One of the things I might do is say, "Hey, Starfinder people, what's here later that I can plant a kind of a clever seed for?" So people who know. The packed worlds can say, oh, but that's the thing that was, you know, go, I know what it's going to be. So yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think that might be as far as we might realistically take it. I want to name a starship after one of the iconic Pathfinder characters. Like, you know, like the, there's a, there's a famous, <laughs> oh. not a, not a class, but an individual starship. Like they've named it, you know, the, the Cerrone or whatever. It was. It was always that I wanted there. To, I want there to, in, in, in somewhere in Starfinder's universe. There exists a small planet that it's called Galarian World, and it's a giant theme park <laughs> based around what people think Galarian was like back yeah. before the Gap, from piece together. And it's like mostly wrong, but it also has like basically a giant foam-headed Valoros, just sort of like yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna fight you with a sword, and you know, it's just, yeah, that's but that's fun. just my goofiness. That could be so meta, right? It could be, oh, what's yeah. that? What's the big floating eyeball with a bunch of tentacles? But we don't say its name for some reason. It was forbidden <laughs> to speak of the creature. I just can't say. I just talking. Is that, did that mean, is that the Whispering Tyrant in the future or something with Gab and Nex? And I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Next. All righty. Um, I think this one is mostly for Patrick. Will there be some for Tianjia due to the Ruby Phoenix AP uh, or from any other product line? Be vague if necessary. Sorry, could you repeat it, Ron? Uh, will there be supporting material for Tianjia ah. <laughs> due to the Ruby Phoenix AP? You know, never say never, but, uh, 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 you know, we did the Dragon Empire's Gazetteer a couple of years ago, a couple being six or seven, um, you know, and that's still one of the best resources on that part of our mm-hmm. world, I think. Um, you know, we're... Uh, uh, it's really tricky to kind of to kind of commit to that kind of thing because it's a big ask for the reader, right? It's like, okay, the inner sea region, Absalom, all these awesome things, Aridin's dead. Remember all that? Okay, put it on pause real quick. We're going to go to the other side of the world for 128 pages, and you're going to read this, you know. And that's a big sell for the reader. That's a big ask for the the publisher, who's we're taking a big risk on that, um, you know. And, uh, and it's a big ask for uh, for developers because we have to write an entirely new region, you know, that or whatever. Um, so of course, with every adventure path, there's um, supporting articles in the back matter, and there's plenty of that. I think there's we really hone in on some aspects of particular areas in Tian Sha uh, where the adventure takes place. So you get a more in-depth look at, um, you know, some of the major cities and that kind of stuff in the, uh, in the setting rather than, rather than doing a whole nother big book like Dragon Empire's Gazetteer. Yeah, that was a little, there was a little bit of that in the um, Tyrant's Grasp AP where there was a volume set in Arcadia. 
instead of, mm-hmm. oh, hey, here's our opportunity to detail all of Arcadia. It's like, what's the part that matters? And let's really hone in and make that super interesting, even though that's a smaller part of a greater whole. So yeah, I think it sounds like something that we, you know, would, the way that we'll be handling these things to make the story fit the story best. Yeah, and, um, you know, like, the Starfinder like, oh, go ahead. Well, like I said, never say never. And, uh, you know, if you really want to see more Tian Shaw stuff, then uh, buy a bunch of uh, buy a bunch of Fist of Ruby Phoenix and tell all your friends to buy it, too. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. We, we track that. We follow where uh, people's preferences are, both on the forums, but more with the uh, what they spend. So that helps. Uh, for the Starfinder folks, with the first high-level adventure path, mm-hmm. Devastation Arc, for Starfinder coming out, are there plans for a level one through twenty adventure path for Starfinder in the future? We don't have any current plans for that situation. We would have to most likely we'd have to do something either with the format uh, in some way, i.e., make the adventures longer, or possibly uh, stretch it out to be nine volumes, for instance, or, or something like that. But um, at the moment, we're, we're we don't we don't have any anything on the horizon that we that we can talk about. Yeah, the, the the thing people have to remember is is that Starfinder Adventures are just fewer pages than the Pathfinder Adventure. And if we make it any longer, something else has to give, right? Like there's just Keely and I. Like right, we're just two people. Yeah. And and you guys are doing the same thing over Pathfinder, but you have to work fifty percent harder because your books are longer, right? <laughs> Uh, and we never, do. I would never wish this on you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So, so either either we have to make the adventure path nine volumes, which is kind of tough, as as Patrick was putting it, it's a, it's a big ask because now we're asking an individual person to buy nine months yeah. worth of adventures. Yeah. That's a lot. Okay. Or we make the books bigger, and that means we have to hire a third person. Like, or or some yeah. It, that's a very tough circle to square. Indeed. Now that doesn't mean that we aren't talking about maybe doing something different. Doing something else, yeah. We 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 we're we're in really interesting, active, creative mode right now with Adventure Path, and uh, nothing's been decided, but we're talking about it a lot, and and we're throwing around a lot of ideas. Bowman was in an office meeting with us not too long ago, and he said, "Listen, we invented the word Adventure Path. Like we decided what that word, what those words meant." we can change the meaning. We can expand it. We can, and we can make it mean whatever we want it to mean. And he's right. He's totally right. Alrighty. What was Paizo's assessment of the reception of the evil adventure path? And is another future one like that likely? So talking about hell's vengeance in particular. Uh, personally, I think it, it was a, it was an interesting experiment to to have happen at that particular part of the uh, Paizo's Adventure Path uh, lifespan. Right, it was after that we'd already done a hundred volumes. At that point, we can sort of do this kind of kooky sort of experiment, to, uh, and that one you know basically does also have a sort of vague tie into Hell's Rebels in a lot of ways. That was that's almost a a twelve volume Adventure Path in 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 a very minor way, but. Um, uh, I, I think that in general, we uh, aren't, I, a lot of us, uh, I'm going to speak for myself mainly, but aren't super keen on that kind of thing. Um, because, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's fun to do very, you know, on, on a, on a, like maybe like a one shot kind of basis uh, every once in a while. But uh, uh, personally, I don't necessarily want to like 
foster that kind of particular play. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. You know. it, can I, can I jump in? Oh yeah. Oh, I'm done. I'm done. Please. Uh, I, when I was doing the player's guide for fly for your die, and this is an adventure path about kind of mercenary scoundrel characters. And it's very open. Like you would think, okay, this is it. This is where I can play my chaotic evil, whatever. And, and I, I hired Chris Sims who used to sit at my desk in my cube. Like where I am right now used to be the Sims chair of Starfinder. And I hired him to write the player's guide. And, and he was, he was really great. He delivered this excellent article in which he said, look, like there's shady, there's self-interested, and then there's evil. Right. Yeah. And, and nobody wants to share a bunk with the evil guy. <laughs> right? Like you don't want to have to room with that guy cooped up in a starship on the drift for five to six weeks, like days. You don't want to be that person. Um, so this is going to be a, a, an adventure path for kind of neutral characters and, and also for good characters. Because if we go to like inspiration literature, like for Firefly, Captain Mao of, of Serenity, he pretends to be neutral, right? He says, I'm here to do the job and get paid. Like he's got this sort of lawful neutral line that he says, but it's all talk, man. Like when, 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 the, when it comes down to it, He's kind of good. Like he he can't not bring medicine to the people that are sick. He can't he can't take the bad guy's money if it's going to hurt innocent people. He he can't actually do it. He pretends to be lawful neutral because he thinks that being good is a weakness other people will take advantage of. That's the kind of play we can encourage. But I I have to agree with 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 uh, my my colleague. Uh, I I think that. I don't, I don't know if evil campaigns are good for the hobby. Now, they might be great at your table. I'm, I'm not here to tell you yeah. people how to play. Like, every your, your campaign may vary. But I don't know if – but maybe that just means it's great for third-party stuff. Like, publish that evil campaign on Drive-Thru RPG. Go to town, man. Like, I'll read it. But I don't know if Paizo can do it. I don't think that's really our role. Eight, eight times out of ten, I feel like you can run uh, something that we've written with evil characters and oh. with like minor tweaking, and, and it can just run. I ran Council of Thieves, a, 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 the AP where you fight against sort of evil people. As uh, my my characters were a group of another part of the Thrun family, going like these Thrun's don't know what they're doing. We're gonna do it right, and you know, basically they were evil, but they did the, almost the exact same stuff uh, throughout. So, yeah, a, a lot of times you can just take what we've written and, and tweak it. And you know, Keely, that's a really good point. It's a lot easier to take a uh, an AP where you assume the players are either neutral or good, and, and make that make it an evil AP at, at home. It's a lot easier to do that than to take an evil AP and make it a good, you know, a good right. Person yeah, it, it, that's right. a great point. That's a great point. Patrick's right. Yeah. One of the things that really impacts what it is we do, what the four of us do, the stories we tell, is what drives us personally, what thrills us personally. I, I wrote the last volume of the Hell's Vengeance campaign, but it just sort of, I mean, it just sort of made me feel yucky, right? Oh, now we're going up <laughs> against paladins, and now we're going up against angels. And I'm like, mm. you know, now that I've got some, some of the creative control over that, one of the things I've done in Extinction Curse is, uh, it's very subtle, is drop the word PCs as, as, uh, and replace it with heroes, right? That's Who's, who's on this path? The heroes. And there can be anti-heroes. Maybe we'll do that at some point. But if anything, I'm, I feel like I'm personally leaning the other direction 
away from the evil campaigns towards the uh, the celebration of doing the heroic thing, doing the, the right thing. But then, Patrick, uh, didn't you cut, cut the word of heroes from... Well, with, mm, I like to kind of... So the reason we kind of got rid of PCs, one of the reasons was that it's, uh, it's jargony kind of stuff. You know, anytime we can take out a piece of jargon that's just uh, alienating to new readers, the better. Um, you know, so... But what I I like to do is you know make it read make it read like a piece of fiction really right so like I'm listening to audiobooks a lot nowadays and um, you know there's a preacher and a character and they call him Casey sometimes and they call him the preacher other times yeah. um, you know and and uh, you know I wouldn't I don't use the I think the blanket term heroes makes a ton of sense for Extinction Curse because they are heroes in that case you know um, they're saving the world uh, but in uh, Agents of Edgewatch for instance you know um, you're you're heroic of course uh but you're your agents first and foremost so that's the that's the kind of word i use most often um because we have to you know you can't anticipate what the player characters uh you know do outside of their role in the adventure path so you kind of just say well they're definitely the agents of edgewatch so we'll call them that and we'll call them player characters and we'll call them heroes every now and then so of course the first volume of five year die is called we are no heroes, right? We are no heroes. <laughs> exactly. So I couldn't exactly. use the word heroes in the book. Yeah. So we, but unfortunately, they are members of a crew, right? So mm -hmm. I can call them, I can say the crew, right? Okay. And that doesn't mean it. Totally. It's a good neutral word, too, because it's kind of alignment neutral crew. Mm -hmm. That's true. All right. One of the questions we had is, what area would you all like to explore in a future AP? Uh, this is, this is, I guess maybe we just go around and see if you could do with complete creative freedom to do an adventure path, what would it be? Boy. Go around. I'll go first. Um, okay. Uh, time war. That's all. Yeah, basically. It's a, a, a war, a war <laughs> okay. that, a war that is occurring in the far future, even of Starfinder, uh, it develops time travel and it kind of bleeds back into the present. This is not a give the PCs the time machine, uh, AP. It is more of a, um, uh, they get wrapped up into things that they can't necessarily control and figure out, the, maybe figure out a way, have to figure out a way back home while being pawns in this giant war. There you I, go. That's very cool. Okay, I'm going to riff off that because I would love to do the AP where they do get a time machine. One of my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite games ever made was a Super Nintendo game called Chrono Trigger. And it's, it's like this, you know, it starts as a typical fantasy RPG. You're like, yeah, I got a sword, whatever. And then you get sent back in time and forward in time and you're on Earth all of a sudden. And, uh, you know, it's just really cool. And uh, it feels disorienting at first, but then you're, you know, then you're like, wow, it's all this grand story that spans millennia, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, it's hard to beat that for high level adventures, right? It's like, you're not only saving the world, you're saving the timeline, right? <laughs> yeah. What, what, so the, the players should know that we literally have an entire list, a page long list, two pages now of APs we want to do. <laughs> like we, and, 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 it, and it just keeps getting longer. So you can ask us this question and any given day, it'll be a different answer. Uh, uh, I pitched a bunch of, I pitched three different ideas when we chose Fly for Your Die. One of the other ones was my return to Kasoth AP, which we'll never do because Kasoth are too niche. Like it doesn't appeal to enough players. But you said I had complete creative freedom, so damn it, that's what I'm doing. 
and we would and I, I want to do this. I want to do this version of Kasoth. That's the planet of the Kasoth, right? That the that the Adari is coming from, and and I want to do it like like Krypton, like it's this kind of decaying, high tech, super science civilization that is collapsing around itself. Uh, at, but but there's a way to maybe save it, or maybe this this planet's going to blow up or something. And the and the players are involved with all these politics of the ancient Kasoth families who have never left, and and they're, but they're they've got Kasoth that are with them that are maybe perceived as like outsiders, like you you don't belong here anymore. And you know, I had this; it would be really fun, but we'll we'll never do it. <laughs> I think my on. So one of the things I would like to do if I could get away with it, and I I don't know, I do, I haven't felt like I could before now is I'd like to do a a very early prehistoric adventure path where, I mean, I got a lot of dinosaurs in the Extinction Curse, don't get me wrong, but something yeah. that is pre, pre-humanity where expanding human tribes making their way across in the world is, they're the bad guys, right? So you're the, 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 wow. the, the pre, pre-human civilizations who are trying to preserve what you have against the rampaging hordes of humans and their, their, uh, their, their industry and their strange religions and they're the weird ones and you want to kind of keep them at bay and interesting all righty we have a request for patrick can we get some maybe some light spoilers okay. somebody asked for agents of Edgewatch. oh light light spoilers sure yeah, uh, make it, yeah. yeah let's let's delve all the way into it here i'm gonna pull up the 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 main bad guy, his NPC, uh, stat block. Um, just kidding. Uh, so, with, with he's weak to this. Yeah, exactly. Armor class yeah. is thirty-seven. Make sure you equip a longsword. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, with Agents of Edgewatch, you start out. Uh, the players start out as rookie officers of this newly formed, uh, newly formed precinct called the Edgewatch, right? And they're they're watching over. Um, the newly restored Precipice Quarter. The Precipice Quarter in, uh, in Absalom is this uh, ruined kind of hellscape that uh, there was an earthquake, earthquake 20 years ago or whatever, and uh, everything fell into the ocean, and it was just really bad scene after that. So thankfully, uh, you know, everything is getting put back together, at least temporarily, for the Radiant Festival, which is this once-a-century millenn- once a, once a um, fair, kind of like a, a world's fair, and everyone from around the world's coming and and attending this awesome festival, and so they need cops to to make sure that all the uh, you know all the charlatans and rogues out there aren't getting uh, aren't aren't taking advantage of all the tourists. So you're the cops who are taking care of these small time you know crooks and and all that stuff, bank robbers, what have you. Uh, but it quickly becomes clear that they aren't you know these these crooks and and charlatans aren't the the true nefarious force uh you know there's there's something going on behind the scenes there's a cob a cabal of uh of norgabur norgorber worshiping uh uh clerics and and uh, and followers basically followers of norgabur who's our uh deity of murder and thievery and poisoning and uh and secrets and all that stuff uh bad bad god don't want to be worshiper of this guy um <laughs> But, uh, you know, you find out that there's there's a, a cabal uh, of these worshipers and they're doing some stuff. And the uh, the the scheme basically is that you will end up arresting, you know, the the, mem- the key members of this cult one by one as they're committing all these crimes that have broader and broader implications for Absalom and uh, eventually threaten the entire city itself. 
So, uh, yeah, I don't want to spoil everything. You know, the, the first uh, issue is coming out in uh, July, I think. So, um, you know, you'll be able to read the campaign summary there and, uh, and get to learn all about, you know, which, which, who, who done it. Alrighty. Alrighty. We've got, I'm looking over <laughs> some of the, uh, the Twitch chat and the questions and for the Starfinder folk, there is a lot of interest of Kingmaker in Starfinder. Yeah. I mean, is that, sure. what, what kind of aspects of that really interest you? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that I want to, uh, one, if we did something like that, we personally, I'd want to make clear that this is not a uh, uh, land on an alien planet and, and uh, colonize it because with with other sentient life forms on that because of reasons um that should be clear hopefully to everyone but more like a, a settling so like we, we 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 tend to use the word colonize when we talk about mars like we're going to colonize mars with literally we should be maybe using the word settle mars because it, it's a little less steeped in bad history um so if there was something like that it'd be just like have this blank planet that's got some maybe some ruins on it or some some fun alien um species of flora and fauna i should say uh that are that are that are you might want to you know be hostile or not um and maybe some kind of crazy like you know mineral or something that resource that that is super important so that's why you would need to go there and start setting up your uh your settlement um that that's how i would approach such a thing um uh one way to approach it uh, and i think that uh i mean it's a it is a common trope of sci-fi that we should probably end up doing at some point in the future maybe yeah i'll just add that this is something that we have been talking about since before i was hired like everybody wants to do it yeah. there is no question everybody wants to and i mean the people in the company as well as the people uh the the players at the tables the question has been how to do it and uh we had a lot of different pitches. One of them was mine. Like I came up with a different way, yeah. to do, my way, my first way to do this. I thought, well, maybe there's already some people there. Like instead of landing on the alien planet and conquering it, maybe you land on this alien planet and there's this culture there. And maybe there's a bunch of different cultures in this star system and you kind of pick one and you kind of help them create the government. And then I realized as Keeley right next to me pointed out, you didn't write Kingmaker in space. You wrote War for the Crown in space. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, you're not a bitch. You're right. But, but of course, <laughs> he's right because because um, Crystal's War for the Crown is amazing, and I loved it. It was one of the first adventure paths I read when I was an editor. It was one of the first things I started to work on as an editor, and I really admired it. So I guess it's no, it doesn't, it's no mystery that when it came time to i went i ran home to mama right like i ran i ran home to, to my, my start we're we'll we'll figure it out yeah like, everything Keely said is right we'll we'll figure it out we'll figure out a good way to do it that both is saying the right things narratively and is also fun and challenging and mm -hmm. gives the people what they want to see when they ask for kingmaker right yeah yeah, yeah. Well, uh, the, another another way that I had thought of to do this uh, again, it would be to sort of what if you were uh, 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 on a planet that was just getting space travel, right? And maybe yeah. there's some some intrigue on there, and then you're branching outwards from your home world, maybe making alliances, basically doing a, a Star Trek like Federated Alliance sort of situation where you're just making uh, uh, meeting new civilizations that are in your system and, and uh, who are also just getting to space. 
um, and uh, 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 essentially uh, forming a forming a pact. Yeah. That was, uh, uh, Jake, I didn't know that's where you'd come in. That was, uh, War for the Crown was also my entry. When I first came in, I was immediately put on the back matter of War for the Crown. So we've got the same the same roots, uh, uh, the, the fertile ground nourished by Crystal Fraser coming up into Paizo. <laughs> so, here, so here's the thing. This is my very brief story on this. I, I was hired, right, like I, I was hired one week before we announced the Pathfinder 2 playtest. So I arrive in Seattle and it's now obvious why I was hired because <laughs> everybody is working crunch time to get second edition playtest ready. Well, literally every other editor in the cubicle, and we have a big team, we had like eight people. Yeah. Everybody else is working on playtest, except for I think, you know, we have we had uh, uh, working on the the start the, the Pathfinder uh, organized play stuff, uh, uh, Adrian. But the rest of us were all were all on P2. Well, I hadn't been doing any of that P2 research. I didn't know the game at all. So my job was everything else. And <laughs> I had been on the job for literally one hour when Judy, <laughs> who's the best boss in the world, put War for the Crown number five, I think, in front of me and said, do your best. <laughs> right? So, you know, you learn, you learn hard and you learn fast. But... You know, and, and, and I did. I had a lot to learn, but but I learned so much from my wonderful team over that time. And War for the Crown was if you're gonna if you're gonna learn from one AP, that's a great place for me to start. <laughs> yeah, we got uh, we had a question. Uh we've we've talked in a couple of things that we brought up, different subsystems. Uh Jake, you mentioned the mercantile subsystem. We had yeah. a question whether we're going to be keeping the convention of introducing a new subsystem with each adventure path. Um, and I want to I jump in to say only when it helps the story, for example, Abomination Vaults being about a dungeon crawl, which the game already does very well, doesn't have much need for any heavy new, now you're exploring a dungeon subsystem. The, the core rules do an awful lot of that very well. So there's nothing that's, uh, that's a deep new subsystem in Abomination Vaults. Um, but do you guys have some thoughts about these subsystems? And Patrick, if you don't tell people what you learned from doing a subsystem, then I will tell it for you. <laughs> oh gosh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wrote the uh, uh, circus uh, subsystem for Extinction Curse, and uh, the thing about subsystems is they're called subsystems, which is kind of a, a big misnomer, I think, because they're basically just systems. They're new. It's a, a whole new game within a game. It's this kind of, uh, you know, a Russian doll situation you got. And uh, so you have to make it work within a game that already exists. But you also have to make it fresh and feel new and not like the game. Otherwise, why would you have the subsystem, right? So anyway, there's a reason it takes years and years and years to come up with a new edition of this game and a new game in general, and uh, subsystems are a huge load on the author, on development, on, on design, everything. Um, so I, uh, am, I am happy to not do subsystems again for a while. <laughs> <laughs> when, when I, I, like, okay, so the mercantile rules started off as a pitch for the Starship Operations Manual, because we were all in the room, the Starfinder team was all together, and we were throwing up ideas for what's going to go in the Starship Operations Manual. And I was like, I 
rules for how to buy and sell and transport cargo. I want the economics of owning a starship. How many, how many credits does it cost to buy a starship, to maintain it, to, to buy? To, I want all that because there's a lot of players that want that. Well, it didn't make it. It didn't make it in the book. And, and Rob said at the table, he looked at me and he said, just put it in an AP. Well, then poor Keely. <laughs> As I did exactly that. I, I write a whole AP where you can't do the AP without the market rules, right? The virtual rules. And, uh, and so I, I write up these virtual rules. I take a stab at them. And, uh, and, I, and I give them to Keeley. And, and he, poor guy, he's got to develop these things. And he knows I'm sitting six feet away from him, right? So anything he cuts, I'm going to, like, blow my top over. <laughs> uh, but, of course, they ended up better. And this is going back to something I mentioned earlier where – Nine times out of 10, the first version you write of something would be better if you just trimmed it. Like if you just streamed it down a little bit and made it a little simpler and a little bit faster in play and made it not as, got rid of some of the fiddly bits that, that you think when you write it are important to creating realism or, or whatever. No, <laughs> not really. And, and and when it and also this helps make it optional because let's let's acknowledge something about substitutes. There are some players who are going to hate them and are never going to use them, right? And if you if you can't play the adventure without them, we have a problem. So they have All to be right. interesting enough. What what Patrick is talking about is exactly right. Like it has to be yep. interesting enough to attract players, new, mm -hmm. but not so complicated that it drives them off. It's got to be vital but not critical. Yep. It's, it's yep. a real hunter. I think that's, I think that's part of the balance. We are over time. So I'm oh, going to go ahead and uh, thank everybody for, uh, for, uh, uh, for joining us, for asking a lot of really great questions, and for getting excited along with us about what we're going to be providing mm -hmm. in the future. Yeah. Bring those other questions we didn't get to to the AMAs. That's right. That's right. We'll see you in the AMAs. And we'll see you there. Thanks, yeah, Thank you all. The No Direction Network's PaizoCon Online 2020 seminar coverage was made possible by the No Direction Con team, consisting of Jefferson J. Thacker, also known as Param, Ryan Costello, Alexander Agunis, Vanessa Hoskins, Randall Meyer, Dustin Knight, and John Godin. Special thanks to Paizo's social media producer, Peyton Smith, and the entire Paizo staff. For more great Pathfinder, Starfinder, and other RPG news, reviews, podcasts, and blogs, check out nodirectionpodcast.com.